0: that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking.
1: It's not too much to say that Victorian England was pretty much obsessed by ancient Egypt. The center of Egyptian archaeology was University College London. And at the center of this program was the Egyptologist Margaret Alice Murray. I bet you probably haven't heard of her, right? It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today I talk with Kate Shepard about the Egyptologist Margaret Alice Murray. Shepard is an associate professor of history at Missouri University of Science and Technology and the author of a really interesting book, The Life of Margaret Alice Murray, A Woman's Work in Archaeology. Kate Shepard, thank you for talking with me today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Could you talk about Margaret Murray a a little bit? Tell us a little bit about her early life, where she came from.
2: Yeah, happily so. Um, I do love talking about her childhood because it's kind of a, it's sort of your standard Victorian childhood, if you will, but it's Mm -hmm. very much the standard um, British Indian childhood. So she was born in uh, Calcutta. India in uh, 1863, and she lived there until she was seven, and then, um, as a lot of British Indians did, they sent um, Margaret and her older sister, Mary, home to live with some family to school, to go to school, uh, until she was about... Geez, I think thirteen or fourteen, um, and then uh, she and her sister moved back to India. Her father was a was a businessman in Calcutta, uh, so he was more an administrator. He wasn't military; he was an administrator. And that her mother had been a, a missionary, and mm-hmm. um, they they went and had a had very comfortable um, British Indian childhood with servants and you know nannies and things. And um, I think when she was. 18 or 20, she moved back. Her father had died and she and her mother uh, moved back to London. I'm sorry, they moved back to rugby and she started kind of looking for jobs because her father wouldn't let her have a paying job when he was alive, uh, because no Victorian gentleman would do that, she said.
1: And she was very middle, would you call her middle class or upper middle class? I
2: would say middle class, uh, but comfortably enough that um, her father thought that I think he had set them up to not have to work after he died. Um, But she lived until she was 100. So there's, there's very, you know, until 1963. So yes, unless you're extremely wealthy, that's not something that your father can really do for you um, in that period. Um, so yeah, very, I would say comfortably middle class. I wouldn't say upper even, but comfortably middle class. Um, she actually, her father allowed her to work for three months as a volunteer nurse at the Calcutta hospital. Um, and she was there during a cholera outbreak. She worked really long days and nights uh, for no pay because her father would not let her take any pay, uh, and she was not allowed to work a day over three months, but she loved it. She absolutely loved working, and so after her father died, she was sort of, it's going to sound bad, but she was sort of freed, Uh right, to go back to England and get a job and possibly go to university, and so then when she was 30, she entered uh, UCL to do Egyptology with Flinders
1: Petrie. So uh, just a quick question about college, before we get to the Egyptology work with uh, Petrie, what would women be going to the university for in the late 1800s, given these kind of restrictions that were imposed by Murray's father, and I'm sure other fathers?
2: So at UCL, especially, it was more of a like the working man's college mm-hmm. being in the industrial center of London. Um, it had a lot of really useful subjects is, is how they advertised it to people, basically. So they had things like uh, degrees in Chinese language and um, Bengali law, because you had these men who were educated at Oxford and Cambridge and they knew Latin and Greek fluently, but then they were sent to India to – administrate a government whose language they didn't speak, Mm -hmm. uh, whose laws they didn't know. So UCL sort of said, why don't we teach that to people? Because it's very useful. Um, So that's what they did. And women going to UCL were going for a lot of the same things, not medicine. They weren't allowed in medicine at UCL until, I think, after the First World War. Mm -hmm. And then, um, but they were going for Um, Things like Egyptology, they were welcomed in. Eugenics with um, Francis Galton, um, they were welcomed in there. Um, Some of the more anthropology, some of the more uh, humanitarian, like the humanities, um, they were welcomed into mathematics and statistics with guys like Carl Pearson. But, I mean, even though it was a rule at UCL that women were allowed in um, to equal degrees as men, so if they took the same classes and the same exams, they were allowed the degree, it was also up to the discretion of the professor. Uh So the professor could say, "Mm, no, I don't want a woman in my class, and so she couldn't take that class. Or, yes, you can come in, but you have to – you can be in my class, but you have to come in and sit behind a curtain in the back row uh, so that you don't distract anybody. So on the one hand, you've got UCL going, women are allowed. but professors can can make that decision in the end. Um and then you have a number of professors going, No, 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 I don't want any undergraduates in my in my classroom.
1: So uh I wonder if you could talk about Egyptology. Why it doesn't seem uh probably to many people that you're you know, uh, somebody going to university would say, aha, Egyptology, that's what I'm going to study on. And and, so I'm wondering if you could provide a little background on, you know, what was going on in Egyptology at this time.
2: Uh, Yeah, so um, Flinders Petrie was the chair of, he was the first chair of Egyptology in Britain, and uh, the first established at UCL in 1892, uh, named for Amelia Edwards, who had um, bequeathed this money in her will and so he established this department um, with Edward's money and this was huge for for Egyptology in Britain because for the longest time um, Britain had been sort of at the forefront of Egyptology but they didn't really have a training program for it So Petrie began to establish this and he really did. um, He really welcomed women into his department uh, for a lot of reasons. He he really just wanted the best workers. He was extremely pragmatic. He just wanted the best people. He didn't really care, you know, if you were a man or a woman or how old you were. So he really welcomed women into his into his department, into the field uh, was was a little bit different. Um, the field was was extremely open to amateurs who had a lot of money. Uh, Petrie didn't have a lot of money, but he had he had institutions who would back him, like the Egypt Exploration Society. Or he started the British School of Egyptian Archaeology. He was in Egypt at one point as a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it was. In the at the turn of the night at the turn of the twentieth century, he Egyptology was in the fields, very much open to people who were interested and who had money and who could uh, provide some some help basically to excavations and things like that in Egypt because the Department of Antiquities in Egypt didn't really have a whole lot of of funds. so they yeah. they relied on, on money coming in from outside.
1: So, uh, and this was part of a broader uh, kind of Egypt mania going on in the late 19th century, right? What was what was the fascination with Egypt that took hold in the West?
2: Ooh, that is a that is a broad
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: question. Well, <laughs> I love it. Um, <laughs> gosh, there's so there's so much stuff, and I actually love. I'm gonna digress a little bit here. I love sure. asking my students this question. I love when I get to talk about Egyptology, and so many of of my students, um, as undergrads, you know, I'm just like, we all know about things like King Tut, but why is why do these new discoveries? Why are they still making the news? Why is King mm-hmm. Tut's tomb such a big deal? Like, what is the draw for that? And there, I'll just. You know, they're just like, wow, but it's so exciting. Yeah, but why is it so exciting? Mm. You know, most of you haven't been to Egypt. Like, what's going on? And it's hard for people really to put it in words. Um, but, yeah, I mean, so at the turn of the 20th century, um, you're getting a lot of of new scholarship coming out of Egyptology because of the language. So the script mm-hmm. The script is becoming much more decipherable. Uh, they're figuring out the differences between Old Egyptian, Middle, and, and New Kingdom Egyptian scripts and things like that. So you're actually able to read a lot of the, you're able to read a lot of it and understand more the history of of what really was going on. But then you have just these monumental finds, um, a lot of them which ended up in the British Museum. The Metropolitan Museum of Art um, has an amazing uh, display. Their entire collection is out on display. Uh, and of course they have the temple at Dendur inside, sort of rebuilt inside. So you get these, just this massive monumental architecture that's sort of being spread all over the world. Uh, and people are just really excited and just fascinated by the fact that these sort of non-white people have, mm-hmm. have done these monumental architectural Feats basically, and how did they do it? Why did they do it? What was going on? And um, it seems sort of mysterious on the one hand, but also really exciting and accessible on the other hand. So, unlike uh, I I know Stephanie Mosier argues in Wondrous Curiosities, she says, Look, you've got these, you've got this general public who feels excluded from Greek and Latin and classical archaeology because you need to understand Greek and Latin to know what's going on there, but then you get this Egyptian stuff that nobody understands when you first get it to Europe. And so it feels like a much more open field, which allows a lot of people to engage with it. And I think that I, I think that that's just continued, you know? People mm-hmm. just kind of were like, wow, this is really cool.
1: Yeah. And at sitting at the heart of it, at least uh, insofar as the traditional story goes, is Flinders Petrie, right? That's mm-hmm. the way. Yes. Um, and so could you talk about... Petrie, and then I'm going to ask you about his relationship uh, with Murray.
2: Yeah. um, So Petrie was sort of the ultimate autodidact, which um, when he was young, he was sort of sickly. And so he read a lot of books at home. He was really big into surveying and he would go out with his father. And the thing that that really got him interested in going to Egypt was to... Was to measure the pyramids and to really say this is how big they really are because you had guys like um, Piazzi Smith who were saying oh there's this pyramid inch and look how special they are and and Petrie was like look these are these are monuments this is architecture I'm going to measure it he was he was the ultimate realist really in that sense so so yeah I mean he's really this guy who sort of said yeah I'm interested I think I'll go here and do these things and once he measured it, um, once he measured the the pyramids at Giza, um, he, he published it. And that's how he got, uh, I do believe, that's how he got some Royal Geographical Society funding uh, in the early 1880s. and And just kind of went from there and just sort of said, I'm going to take this measuring and surveying and figuring out patterns. And I'm going to then apply it to the material remains that I pull out of the ground.
1: And uh, in the 1890s, Murray starts as his student and then Mm -hmm. quickly, I think within about four years, becomes his colleague uh, at uh, University College. Uh, Could you talk about, I guess, talk about their relationship and also the ways in which you feel she's been eclipsed unfairly by his work?
2: Yes. Um, Yeah, he was gone. She got there in 93 towards the end of the calendar year. And so when he got back um, in 1894 from his uh, surveying at Coptos, I think. Yeah. Uh, he returned and um, he basically sort of was like, Hey, who's that over there doing that work? And they met and he sort of, he started giving her tasks and realizing just how competent and, and good she was at what he gave her to do. Mm-hmm. So, Um, So, yeah, very, very quickly, uh, she ended up taking over the hieroglyphics, beginning hieroglyphics classes from uh, Francis Griffith, Frank Griffith, who went on to Oxford later on. Um, And the Griffith Institute is named after him there at Oxford. But she took over those early language classes within Mm -hmm. a couple of years. And it's not clear. I don't think that she ever ended up getting her degree. Um, She got an honorary degree much later uh, in the early 20th century. So so there was obviously some recognition of the work that she'd done and the expertise that she had. I just don't think she ever uh, finished all of the requirements for a degree at uh-huh. UCL because Petrie put her right to work. Because, again, he, he just wanted the people who were the best, and she was one of the best, and he could trust her. When he left for six or eight months out of the year, he could trust her to keep the department running at mm-hmm. home and she absolutely did and he would send her back you know boxes and boxes of material remains and um had her labeling a lot of things in the petri in the in the museum um for display and one of the things he sort of tested her on early on was um the ithyphallic god um what is it min the ithyphallic god min and he's got this just there he is as a as a as a person and then he just has a giant penis, uh, an erect mm-hmm. penis. And so he kinda tested her, like, how is she gonna how is she gonna do this tastefully? And what is her reaction gonna be when I ask her to, to label this this thing um, mm-hmm. and she just did it very practically and just well I guess we'll do it like this and she put a piece of paper over it she put a piece of paper over a men's penis and, and labeled and that was the label she put the label over the penis and he really liked that Petrie was pretty happy with that <laughs> <laughs> and impressed that she you know didn't freak out on him and go oh I can't believe you're having me do this I'm not gonna do it so it was at that point I think he kind of realized all right she'll pretty much do very well whatever task I set for her and she did
1: One of the um, things that I found was very interesting in your book was you talk about how Murray could do a number of different things. She was really good in the field. Mm -hmm. Um, She was an incredibly smart person. um, But she really made her mark as an administrator and as a teacher. Mm -hmm. And that you make this point that Those are kind of made invisible when we talk about uh, progress or or significance in the history of science. Could you talk about that?
2: Yeah, um, absolutely. She essentially, like I was talking about before, she essentially ran the department while Petrie was gone. Um, When he would come back, he was very busy with the administration of the collection that he had just brought back. Um, just getting it distributed, um, talking to donors, trying to get more money for the next season, writing up his, um, field reports, which he was famous for getting out very, very quickly. Um, but because he was doing all of that, it required a massive amount, a a massive network behind him, um, sort of behind the scenes, keeping everything else running or else, you know, you have a guy like Petrie, you have a guy like Petrie running, a a department like that, it's going to fold pretty quickly because he's just not there to do Mm -hmm. it. So you've got women like Murray who are teaching 20 or 30 hours per week. um, You know, cause she's doing six classes per semester, six classes per term. um, And they're all unique preps. They're all unique classes. So she has to sort of do six different classes each term. Um, And what she's doing is she is, she designed um, and implemented this this two year training program in the classroom for students who would then go out and dig with Petrie. So um, she sort of molded them and gave them all of the tools that they needed back home, and um, sent them out to the field with Petrie. And Petrie was pretty famous for kind of saying like. N-n-n. You know, diggers don't need to be scholars. Uh, they need to know what they're finding. They need to mm-hmm. know sort of what what's important when they pull it out of the ground. But you don't necessarily need to be a scholar. Uh, but he did agree with Murray that there were some that there were some skills that his students needed as they came out into the field, and that's what she did. But again, because she's sort of not in the field at the exciting, you know, edge of the edge of the trench, essentially, um, people just kind of kind of really focus on the field, because the field's exciting. You're not going to get a, you know, you're not going to get a really exciting movie about about people reading books, you know. Um, <laughs> I wish we could, yeah. but.
1: We look at these uh, people who do administration, and okay. it is, as you said, um, a kind of work that's often made invisible or, you know, we're 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 looking at, you know, to use a sports analogy, we're we're looking at Tom Brady more than we are Bill Belichick, uh, the great organizer. But actually Bill Belichick gets a lot of praise too. Yeah. And I don't feel like uh Murray was really seen I mean it just becomes very clear in your work the ways in which this this organization couldn't run. They couldn't do this kind of work were she not Really sitting at the center of it, yeah,
2: yes, her or, or somebody, right? right? I mean, yeah. um, that I think, yeah, sort of writ large. There's there's got to be somebody other than this great man who's doing this. Because, for example, and just sticking with Egyptology, there's, um, you know, the great Gaston Maspero, who was the director of the the Cairo Museum um, for a very long time in the late nineteenth, and then he sort of. In the late 19th century, he kind of took a break and then came back um, for a while in the early 20th century. But he was very much out in the field a lot, so he counted on his administrators back in the museum. But we know who those people are, and I and I I would argue it's because they're men. Yeah. Um. They were there because you know they were in the field. Um. You know, Cairo is is technically, I mean, one could argue for Egyptology the field. Um, so you have, you know, people like, um, Rex Engelbach, who was a student of Murray's and Guy Brunton, who was a student of Murray's and they were administrators at the museum. Um, but we know who they are because they did this, they did this type of sort of field administrative work, but still in the field. Yeah. But then when you get back home, when you get back home to the home institutions, um, and I know that uh, Alice Stevenson at UCL is writing a book about um, how the fines from the field got split up once they got home. And she's doing so much work on what women were doing with these fines because mm-hmm. um, they were administrating the, sp- the splitting of these fines. And so you tend when you get home to London or Liverpool or, uh, you know, wherever these collections are. New York. You get women at the helm who are the ones who are in charge.
1: I want to uh, back up just for a minute and talk about um, Murray's unwrapping, public unwrapping of two mummies yeah. in 1910. Yeah. Uh, could you talk about that event or events?
2: The unwrapping was in uh, 1908, and that was after Petrie and his crew had found two mummies from the Middle Kingdom in an undisturbed tomb uh, outside, uh, It was a site outside um, Giza, actually, called Deir el-Rifa, and there were cliffs that were undisturbed, and so Petrie's crew went out and they started sort of looking through these cliffs and found one undisturbed tomb um, and brought the entire thing back to Britain. And it was given to the University of Manchester mm-hmm. for display in their university museum because um, – and how this, this is how this worked back then. Uh, Petrie got um, money to fully fund his dig for the next year from Manchester. So he said, OK, great. You give me this money. I'll give you the collection. And so um, that's what ended up happening. And then the following year um, in 1908, uh, his protege, Margaret Murray, was chosen to do this very public, very important uh, mummy unwrapping. It had, it was the first mummy unwrapping in Britain in, I think, I don't at least 50 years, if not much longer than that. And um, there were over 500 people in attendance and she unwrapped one of, she unwrapped one of the mummies, um, but not the other. They were believed to have been brothers. It was the tomb of the two brothers and they're still there at Manchester and it is a beautiful display. Um, Uh And the one she unwrapped was for science. Both she and Petrie were very, very clear, especially in the report that they wrote that she wrote up later, um, you know, saying, hey, this was for science. Um, We're we're not disturbing, you know, the dead. Um, You know, this is a these are the yes, these are human remains, but um, they don't have any feelings anymore. Uh, we need to, you know, we need to do this for science because um, there was a lot of there was a lot of backlash of unwrapping this mummy, and surely there are other ways we can do this. But both Murray and Petrie were like, "No, in order to find out the things we want to find out, this is what we need to do."
1: That's interesting. So there was a pushback among people in the public yes. that this was uh, kind of uh, desecrating a grave. Yes, hmm. there was a
2: lot that was printed in the Manchester Public. in the the newspaper, um, just saying, you know, don't do this, and writing letters to Murray and Petrie at UCL, um, to which they responded very publicly in the unwrapping report that, you know, we've received letters like this, but we need to understand this. These bodies aren't going to last forever. Now that they're out of the ground, they're not going to last forever, so we need to unwrap them, study them, record what we found, and use this Use this experiment to further our knowledge of, you know, what Egyptians were doing in the Middle Kingdom, and it was such an important tomb because there was very little known about the Middle Kingdom at this point in time. And so, for a for a Middle Kingdom tomb to be found undisturbed with two brothers in it um, was huge. And so they knew that they could that they could get a lot of information from just unwrapping one of these mummies. Um, mm-hmm. But in the end, actually, Murray uh, Murray made the conclusion that the body that she unwrapped, which was very, very dry, she said this wasn't a mummy. It was just a very well-preserved body. Uh, it wasn't technically mummified in the way that they understood mummification at the time uh, because of the materials that were used and and sort of how the body ended up.
1: You know, we we talk in the history of science or social history about separate spheres that in the 19th century, men and women had uh, at least idealistically these different domains that they were supposed to operate in. Mm-hmm. It was a lot more messy on the ground in the sense that women were uh, also working as nurses and educators and uh, were advocating for moral reform and things like mm-hmm. that, but it always seemed like the kind of work that women were doing was somehow connected back to these ideals of the domestic space. Mm -hmm. And when I look at Murray in, uh, in an amphitheater with 500 people peeling back the bandages of a mummy, I think, no way, this is... You know, this was traditional men's work, prestigious men's work. Uh, so could what do you think about that?
2: Yes, um, I completely agree with you. So for Murray to be the one that Petrie chose basically to do this, um, says first of all, says a lot about what he thinks of her as a scientist. Um, but uh-huh. also it says a lot about just who she is in general um, and how she would be respected by the public being up there um and this really was uh, in the book and i i definitely argue that this this was a spectacle and she knew that it was going to be that there were there were people from the mm-hmm. university who were interested in the experiment but so many people from the public who were just interested in kind of the grotesqueness of seeing this mummy unwrapped mm-hmm. i mean i would go to one of these things it'd be <laughs> fascinating <laughs> <laughs> but also kind of this this sort of ick factor, like, oh my gosh, I can't even believe that you know they're handling this human like this. Um, the the mummy unwrapping is kind of this for for Murray especially in this arena was very much a mixture. Uh, I would argue of the the private sort of domestic space of the museum um, uh-huh. and doing this what what was usually sort of behind the scenes work of studying the material remains, but then also a very public um, a very public display, a very public spectacle of this. So she was doing science. um, she was doing the domestic part of it in front of a very, very public audience. Uh, and she was kind of the perfect person to do this because that was. I mean, I've I've I argue that this is kind of her career in in microcosm where Uh she is doing the very background behind the scenes work, the very domestic work, but then making it very, very public in so many ways, whether it's in sending her students to the field or publishing dozens of books on Egyptology and so many other things. Um, or, you know, being the one in charge of this mummy unwrapping and saying, yeah, yeah, okay, we're we're here, we're in the home space, we're here in England, um, and and we need to do this very public scientific thing. I would argue that if she were, you know, 20 or 30 years earlier, um, when Maspero was unwrapping mummies in Cairo, or Grafton Elliott Smith was unwrapping them, in Cairo, I don't think that um, I don't think that she would have been as a woman allowed to unwrap it in Cairo because that was very much a, a a spectacle in the field, and that wouldn't have been at that point in time. I think she wouldn't have been allowed to do that. That would have been something Petrie would have done, if you know what I mean. Like if yeah, if that had all moved to Cairo. Of course, you know that's speculation, but um, but yeah, be, because it was in Manchester, because it was at home, quote unquote. That was definitely her domain.
1: Kate Shepard, thank you for talking with me today.
2: Thank you so much. This was really fun.
1: That's our show for today. Our theme music was composed by Zabrat. If you want to listen to other episodes of Time to Eat the Dogs, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a few moments to rate and review it. I'd like to hear what you think. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to get in touch, email me at time dogs. That's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. You can also find episodes, links, blog posts, and a lot of exploration-related stuff at timetoeatthedogs.com.